Father, um, you have created us man and woman, and you did it for a reason. Thank you. Uh, as a man, thank you for sending uh, my wife into my life. Thank you for taking Adam's rib and making Eve. Father, show us the glory of the gospel through manhood and womanhood this afternoon. Um, Father, let us look past the cultural issues. Let's, let's look past um, all of the perversions that we see in our world today and look at the beauty um, in marriage, not just simply for its own sake, um, but for the fact that it so clearly pictures the love of Jesus for a very, very, very imperfect bride. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. amen. All right, if y'all want to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy. This is, we won't get there just yet, but we're going to get there. Uh, 1 Timothy is one of, I'd say, this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you could. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. These are some really, really, really controversial verses that we're going to look at. We came to the end of our series on... This is the end. This is the end of our series called Very Good. We looked at biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. If you noticed, if you noticed, we really camped out in Genesis most of the time. Did you notice that? I mean, we looked in the New Testament, but I really believe there's no reasonable, meaningful conversation you can have about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman without going back to the garden. And that's what we've done. I haven't, I didn't feed you some, I mean, not that y'all thought this, but I, I mean, I, I'm not doing anything revolutionary here. It's all there in Genesis. And then, of course, we see in the New Testament, um, Paul gives us an even clearer picture for why all this took place. We've seen how sin affects man and woman differently. Man and woman created equal. Equal image bearers of God, equal in their relationship with God, equal in walking with God, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal in value. Co-heirs in the gospel, but different. And they're different for a reason. And now we see with sin, God curses man and woman differently. Um, man and woman are very different. That's that's. I, th I think I told y'all last time, the first time I went on a date and I laid eyes on Kelly, I was like, I mean, I was thinking a lot of things. But one of them was, she's not like me. She's different than me. That was a good thing. Um, I had coffee in Decatur today, and the man serving me coffee was dressed in a dress. Um, long hair, spoke in a feminine voice, startling to see, taller than me, with an Adam's apple, dressed like a woman, made a really good espresso. Um, the problem is, he is a man. His dress, his voice, his setting, his psychology is telling me that somehow he wants to be a woman, but he's a man. God made him a man. Um, and so as we're going to see tonight, <clears throat> one of the reasons that our, our culture is going through this kind of, call it schizophrenia, if you will, where we don't know who we are, one of the reasons is the fall. 
When sin comes into the world, we don't know who we are. And it should be no surprise to us, especially if you read Romans. Romans is 16 chapters. First chapter, about 23, 24 verses in, he starts talking about homosexuality. It takes not even one chapter for Paul to start talking about homosexuality, which tells me there's something about sexual perversion that, will, that is almost inevitable with sin. We shouldn't be that surprised. I mean, we should. It's, 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 con it's contemptible to see that those kinds of things. It's off-putting. But I almost feel sorry. I felt, felt sorry for this guy. He doesn't know who he is. I didn't look on this guy with disgust. I looked on him with pity. Um, and so we need to have that approach. I think the only way the church is going to speak effectively to this coming generation is not holding our hands up and saying, those perverts. The first thing we should do is we should go back, as we did, to Genesis and go, I know why you are, because I'm fallen too. And let me tell you, the reason that I have found joy is the way you can find joy too, and that's in Jesus. We have to be able to speak to a homosexual in the same way that we speak to someone who's divorced. In the same way that someone spoke to us. And that is, homosexuals need the gospel. And I think empathy and in some ways pity, I mean not, not, not all pity, but um, empathy is what we need. So here's my first question tonight. Let's just start with the basics. I have to, as a teacher, I want to make sure y'all are grasping. If you had to give a definition of marriage, a basic definition, in light of what we've learned, someone raise your hand and tell me what marriage is. I'm not looking for just an astronomical definition. Someone just... Throw it out. What is marriage? The gift of God. Gift of God. Good. Partnership. Good. Love with God. Let me ask you this. In light of all that we've learned, everything you all just said, non-Christian could say. I'm not saying it wasn't bad. A Muslim could have just said what you said. When a man and woman unite under God, so that way there is a trinity for them. Okay. Even ba more basic than that. A reconciliation of the gospel. Boom. There you go. If you remember nothing else, that. If none of you walk, if, 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 if any of you walk away and can't remember that, I have wasted this month. Because we keep coming, the more we go, I'm telling you, that's why marriages don't work anymore. People forget that. As, as complicated as marriage is, and it is complicated sometimes. If Kelly were here, she would say I, probably more than I think. But it has to be that simple in, inevitably. At some fundamental level, the way that I understand to treat Kelly is by looking to the gospel. Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. If you remember nothing else, that's it. Now it's important to note, here we go. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all women should submit to all men. I'm going to say that again. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all women should submit to all men. That does not, that's not it. Remember, it's marriage that does that. That is not biblical manhood and womanhood. Emily Jenkins does not submit to my authority. 
She submits to Scott's authority. Kelly does not submit to Josh. She submits to my authority. Okay? That's, that's important to understand because the reason it's important, today's culture, we have to do all we can to make sure this world understands, first, that marriage is for the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's representing the gospel. We also have to make sure this, our culture understands we're not diminishing women. And they are not subservient to every man. I think that's an important distinction to make, um, especially where we're going tonight with, uh, with women in the church. <clears throat> Missouri governor yesterday, did anybody hear that? The Missouri governor is resigning, um, former Navy SEAL, actually, um, because he had an affair on his wife. He took naked pictures of a woman that he was having an affair with, and, and I, think, I think she was bound and had a, I was just, told her to be quiet or he was going to expose her. Two weeks ago, we had the, um, or one, one week ago, we had, uh, who, who's the movie producer? Weinstein. Turns himself into authorities last week. Yeah. Week before that, we had the New York City um, Attorney General fired because of abuse, abuse abusing his, uh, his girlfriend's. Just last week, we had the one of the most legendary living Southern Baptist figures, Paige Patterson. He led the conservative resurgence. He was fired at Southwestern Seminary for not reporting sexual abuse on multiple counts. So the Me Too movement has come to the Southern Baptist Convention. This is the world we live in. This is in, in many ways, I mean, in, in, in many, many, many ways, I thank God for the Me Too movement. Wish it weren't necessary, but it's been a long time coming. Um, the Me Too movement isn't so much a reaction against male authority, it's a reaction against male domination. And as we saw on Sunday, that is due to the curse when God says, Now, Adam, you want to rule over Eve. Now, your temptation, in your sin, you're not just going to lead her, you're going to rule over her. And we're fighting that today. This is the sinful tendency in men. And we're going to see, when Paul talks to men in the New Testament, he says, don't fight. Don't be harsh. He's, he knows men haven't changed in the thousands of years since Adam. We still like to rule. We like our reputation. We like to be respected. There's a way to do that. And there's a, there's a wrong way to do that. Manhood and womanhood is intimately about reflecting the gospel in marriage. And so we've also learned that manhood and womanhood does in some ways reflect the Trinity. That's what uh, Shay said. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So even Jesus Christ had an authority. That's ultimately why the dynamics in a marriage, are they should not be foreign to us. The order in a marriage reflects the Godhead. Here's what Christina Fox said. I might have quoted this a couple weeks ago. I just want to, I want to quote it one more time. This is what she says about that word submission. She says this, Submission in Scripture is not isolated to wives. It's something that Christ did when He yielded to the will of the Father to lay down His life for us. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Submission is something all Christians are called to do. 
For example, we are called to submit to the governing authorities. Children are to obey their parents, and in the body of Christ, believers are to submit to one another. So submitting to the authority, to, to submitting to authority in general is something that all Christians should know how to do. If a woman seriously, if a, if a, if a woman is seriously offended by the idea that she has to submit to the authority of her husband, Scripture says she's probably got a, a problem with authority and with God, not her husband. Likewise, if a, if a husband, lo he loves, there are a lot of men out there who love to have authority over their wives, but they don't know how to serve their wives. Scripture says if that's the case, then they don't know how to submit to the authority of Christ. When I was a youth pastor and I would talk to kids about marriage, I would look to all the girls and I would say, Girls, if you want to know how a guy's going to treat you in marriage, Okay, Shay, I'm picking on y'all because you aren't married yet. Shay, if you want to know how Cody is going to treat you, look at the way that he treats his mama. Which is really good. He's a keeper. Does he submit well to his parents? Does he submit well to the church? Does he submit well to Jesus? A man who cannot submit to authority himself does not know how to lead. Like if I'm a girl and I'm going over to his house and like he's mouthing off to his mom, he's like, hey man, I, lo I love you though, girl. You're like, what? One day you're going to be her. And so you can see that God is preparing us from the second we're born under the authority of our home to the authorities at work, to the, to the governing authorities in our government, whether it's under Caesar or it's under Donald Trump. From the second we're born to when we die, we are under some kind of authority, and that is for our good. That's what God says. That's why, I mean, politically speaking, I, we used to, we've dealt with this. Like somebody go, Trump ain't my president. Obama ain't my president. Yes, he is. Submit to him. He's ordained by God to be there somehow in his providence. The way we submit to government, the way we submit to our parents, the way we submit uh, to one another reflects the way we submit to God. Now we've talked about, this is also important why I think I love seeing men before they get married submitting in, in, to the authority of God's word in the church. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about women in the church. So you're all at 1 Timothy 2. Let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. This is what Paul says. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You can see there's a lot there that needs clarifying, <laughs> at least today. Um, I just had a, a conversation this week, this week, with a guy who, he wanted to know where I stood on 1 Timothy 2. 
do you believe that's what it says? And what do you think he means when he says it? Um, we, uh, the church has to address 1 Timothy 2. It has to. Because God, or Paul is saying things about the way we structure our church that are very important. And if the, the way we structure our church is important, then, then God's designs for the church are not important, and we're just doing church the way we want to. So what does Paul mean? That's what we're going to look at. Did you notice that the first thing Paul addresses in men is the tendency to fight and quarrel? Men have not changed, okay? That's because Paul understands Genesis 3. Our sinful tendency is to rule over one another. We want supremacy, I mean, we know those stories of like deacon meetings where they just, they just fight over stuff. That is a picture not of Jesus. That is a picture of the fall. That's Adam coming out. Paul says that a godly man in the church should be characterized by prayer and worship. Does your man pray? Does your man know how to pray? Does your man know how to pray with you? I would take this to mean at some level, a man who does not know how to pray does not know how to be a man. Ooh. Dang. In the world, a strong man is someone who knows how to lift big weight. In the church, a strong man is someone who knows how to pray for others and walk with God. In the world, an old man is weak. In the church, an old man can be the strongest in the church. Not because of his muscle, but because of his faith. We talk about how opposite that is. I wish Bob were here. I was going to pick on him. I'll pick on Bob anyway. Um, Bob does everything. The reason I can pick on him is Bob... Someone needs to go and tell Bob that he's old. Because he apparently doesn't, he doesn't know it. Because <laughs> he just does things that he shouldn't do. Like right after heart surgery, what is Franklin? What was he doing? He was going out and like pushing up golf carts. <laughs> I think he's what is he seventy? My goodness, he'll get her done. I mean, he's a soldier. Um, he's going to get hurt if he doesn't take care of his body. But we love Bob for how much he serves this church. But Bob also knows that his value and his worth to this church is not primarily in his muscles, his tools, his money, or his know-how. We want Bob to know that eventually, for every act he does with his arm, he must also do on his knees, praying for this church. We want men praying for our young couples. We want men praying for the marriages at this church. We want men praying for the future and the decisions we make. This is why on Manly Mondays, if you were at Manly Monday a couple weeks ago, or if you come here in a couple weeks, we sang two hymns. I saw one guy, I won't say who it was, you know, I don't think he was used to church. He was on the deck like, oh, so we're seriously singing together, okay. That's because men don't sing, usually, together. But we do it Manly Monday, that's because we're making a statement about the way the Bible defines manly. We're lifting up holy hands. We're worshiping God. There cannot be any definition of man or manhood that does not involve worship of the, of the God who makes man. Um, then Paul moves on to women. 
verses 9 through 10. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Stop there just for a second. If you are wearing any kind of gold, you need to get rid of it. I'm kidding. That's, that's a joke. Um, take out braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire and just insert whatever's fashionable today. Which, last I checked, pearls and gold and braided hair and costly attire are still in, in, in vogue. So let's, you, can, you can leave that. The point being, at that time he was writing it, that's what Paul, that's what defined, you know, it's pretty remarkable for a second just how things have not changed. It's just kind of going my mind right now. I mean, my goodness, that is still what def- women add to themselves to become beautiful. Verse 10. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So whereas the first thing that Paul addressed in men was fighting and quarreling and arguing, the first thing Paul addresses in women is their tendency to find beauty in outward appearance. Things have not changed. Isn't it amazing how 2,000 years later, man and woman still fight that same sinful tendency? Men are still trying not to be Adam. Women are still trying not to be Eve. When I was a youth pastor, there was a few times, okay, as hot as y'all think it is in Georgia, go to Louisiana and come back. Um, it was just ugh, so hot um, and muggy. And young girls would be girls, and it's 100 degrees. What do you think they're going to come in sometimes strolling with wearing? Tank tops, shorts, every, I mean, just my goodness. I mean, and in one perspective, you like to see young girls coming in who don't know no better because they get to hear Jesus for the first time. But in the other perspective, I can just, I could feel as a pastor all the, all the kids' like eyes just looking at her, and she's loving it. So I've got a decision there to make as a youth pastor. Don't ostracize her, make her feel welcome in a church, but try to protect my young men and her dignity, honestly. And there are primarily two things I would inevitably say to a young girl. I mean, there were probably several, especially at camp. There are a couple things I would say to this, this young woman. First is, you have brothers in Christ here who are here to worship God, and they are looking at your behind. You, you are enticing them into sinning. Can you please have mercy on them and, and go change? Um, usually that would be fine. Sometimes if they were really contrite, they would cry. You know, you know, it's okay. We're not saying you're a bad person. Just please change. You know, but that is not enough. It's not enough for me to go say, "Hey, look what you're doing to these young men. Go, go change." Uh, there's something else I got to say. I can't just leave it at that. Because if I left it at that, I, it would be more about the young men than her. I have to make sure that I have something to say to her too. Because if, if I just left it at that, it would be, hey, per, this is about the men here. But it's about her too. I care for her. Okay. The second thing I would tell her is I would affirm her in that she doesn't have to wear those things to be beautiful. I would affirm that she's beautiful in other ways other than her exterior. This is not what God says is good. 
Jesus has shed His own blood so that you could be righteous and holy and pure. And God says that's what's beautiful. We have to affirm our young ladies. Not just, not just kind of get out. Sometimes that's hard though. You want to discipline, but we've got to, hone, we've got to hang on to the dignity and the value and the beauty of women. And we have to show them that. Women who wear a ton of makeup and dress themselves half naked, they have no idea what beauty is. When a man argues with another woman and gets into a fight or gets into a fight with another guy or he's arguing, he's expressing his strength and he's saying, my, my identity is in my ability to rule and have dominance. And what he's saying is, look at me. When a young lady waltzes in half naked, not wearing anything, trying to emphasize her sex appeal, what she's doing is she's finding identity in the wrong place and she's crying out, look at me. church should be a place where we're not looking at ourselves we're looking at who? Jesus. The more we focus on ourselves the more self-destructive we become the more we focus on Jesus the more peace we have the more liberated we are. When my wife was growing up <clears throat> and I'll confess to y'all I, I kind of struggled with some anger um, early on with just Kelly's parents and they just they just groomed her to be a beauty queen. And that's not in itself bad. Um, fact is she ended up being a beauty queen. Um, she ended up winning pageants and but the only thing that the only time anybody ever complimented Kelly for a long time was to tell her how pretty she was. And she sees that now. She didn't see that then. And so Kelly slowly allowed people's compliments and their observations to mold her and to allow her to see that her identity was in how she looked. She started to find her identity in her body and in her face. The reason many girls dress the way they do today is because they think that's where their value is. Our job as parents is to show them how beautiful God sees them in Christ and it doesn't have to be with what they wear or what they put on. As Ruby grows up, if you notice, if you'll ever hear me now, if Ruby comes up, usually it's Roman, like a wild man, but if, if, if Ruby's around, if you ever hear me talk to her, anytime I say, oh, you're so beautiful and I piss her, I'll tell her she's smart, I'll tell her she's funny, I'll tell her she's extraordinary, I'll tell her how how, how kind she is to Roman. Anytime I give her a compliment about the way she looks, I'll also affirm her something that's in here. Because I never want Ruby to ever think that's where her value is. Now you better believe I'm going to tell her how beautiful she is. Women should be told that. Uh, but I'm just so careful to do that because I just, I mean, the women today, women have it hard, I think. In some sense, I think they have it harder than men. The pressures that are on women today are just like they're pulling at them. And sometimes they don't even know it. And I just want to make sure she's got to face that world on her own, but Daddy can give her a nudge in the right direction. Isn't it just, even growing up, it was attractive to see another woman who, who, who wasn't just flaunting, but she was smart. She was confident. 
That's attractive. I want Ruby to know that. And what's even more attractive, as Paul says, to the Lord is godliness. The soul of my daughter, the soul of your son, is being shaped by the words we speak to them. Paul says that a woman's beauty is not in her apparel, it's in her similarity to Jesus. Now, verses 11 and 12 are some of the most controversial in the entire Bible. This is Paul speaking about men and women inside the church. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Stop there. Okay. I'm going to make two statements. They're saying the same thing, but I'm saying it differently. (laughs) Some some of the ladies here are smiling right now. She's like, I'm I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. Um, Okay, I'm going to make these two statements. Listen to me. They're saying the same thing. I'm saying it differently, okay? God has called men to exercise authority in the church. Here's the thing. Women aren't allowed to exercise authority in the church. Did you catch the difference? I said the same thing. God, Paul chooses his words carefully now. But they're not exactly how we hear them today from the world. It's more about my rights as a woman. It's more about what I'm allowed. Paul doesn't really show it like that. He's talking about submission in terms of what God wills for the church. And we have to look at it too. Okay? Well, we need to understand here a couple things. Paul is not saying that women can't talk in church because he precedes it with submissiveness. This is about talking in the context of the corporate body of worship, and he, and he, and he qualifies that with teaching. Okay? Teaching. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith itself in all of Paul's writings is associated with the word and the spoken word. And the authority in the church is exercised primarily in the preaching of the word. That's what he's talking about. Okay? Paul is also not saying that women can't exercise authority in the church in some way. Okay? Remember, in the scripture, women of all kinds have leadership roles in the church. Lydia is a leader in the early church in Philippi. Assuming that's where Lydia got her name. Seller of purple goods. Priscilla and Aquila. This Priscilla is the one that really challenges this because Priscilla teaches who? Apollos. A man. A man who knew the scriptures well, but she corrected him with Aquila. Phoebe is a what? Deaconess. Okay. That's not even to mention Mary and Martha. Women are given tremendous roles of leadership in the Bible. What Paul is talking about here is not women being in leadership. I just want to take this time also to say we, are, we have made plans at, at Haynes Creek to have deaconesses. We're, we're trying to formulate how, how we do that just with downtown and, the, and kind of how they... But I see clearly in scriptures that there is such an office as a deaconess. The problem that that's so radical is... We misunderstood the office of deacon to be a ruling office, and it was never appointed to be that. That was the elder and the pastor. So it is not unbiblical to have a deaconess. We see them in the New Testament, and I believe we can have them here at Haynes Creek. That's another conversation for a later time. 
The authority that Paul is talking about here is the authority of an elder or pastor. More importantly, the authority to preach God's word when the saints gather corporately in worship. The ultimate authority of the church is not a man, it's the word of God. So Paul is talking about the kind of authority that wields the word. This is why at Haynes Creek we do not affirm women pastors. I want to be clear on that. We do not affirm women as elders. Why? Because those offices are typified by teaching and preaching. Okay. Um, at no time does Paul ever say women can't teach the Bible. At no time does it Paul ever say women can't teach other women. At no time does Paul ever say that women can't be deacons. At no time does Paul ever say that women can't even... Well, there's no such thing as a Sunday school. I fall... I have no problem for a woman leading a Sunday school. I don't. I, that, that's just a personal preference. Um, I would prefer, though, that the teaching that goes here to be an extension of our teaching offices, and therefore that's why you see most times it's either Stephen or Ken because they're elders. Um, but I, but no time will we ever affirm a woman preaching. And that's not because of a woman's status or her inferiority. That's merely because that's what we see revealed in the Word of God. Okay? Now, there are increasing numbers of denominations who reject what I just said. Episcopalians, Anglicans, Presbyterian, PCUSA, Methodists. Some might go, well, Avi, why don't you get in line with the times a little bit here? I mean, come on. It's 2018. Paul is writing this to first century Christians. We're in the 21st century. I mean, get up with the times now. If a woman is competent, if she's gifted to preach, why not let her preach? Well, Paul gives us a reason in verse 13. Let's read it. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Stop. Did you see what Paul did there? He does the exact same thing here as he did in Ephesians 5, as he did in 1 Corinthians 6, as Jesus does in Matthew 19. He goes back to where? Genesis. That's why we spent so much time in Genesis. Gender roles in the church, just like gender roles in marriage, are not cultural. They are creational. Gender roles in the church are not about competency. It's about God's will. Therefore, as we talked last time, the older, the older that uh, Robert gets, the less stronger he becomes. If it were about competency, then he, we're somehow to believe that he's less of a man today. It's not about competency. It's about what God has created us to be. Does that make sense? I mean, competency in some sense. I mean, you called me because you thought I could preach. But you also saw that I was a dude. Um, Here's what, Paul, here's what Tom Schreiner says about women in church. Why does Paul command women to learn quietly and submissively and forbid them from teaching or exercising authority over women? He provides the reason in 1 Timothy 2.13. For Adam was created first, then Eve. The second creation account is clearly the text Paul has in mind. For there we find the narrative of Adam being created before Eve. The prescription on women teaching men, then, stems not from the fall and cannot be ascribed to the curse. Paul appeals to the created order, the good and perfect world God made, to justify the ban on women teaching men. So just to clarify, just because a woman pastor leads a church does not mean that I declare them anathema. Um, 
not sure if Joyce Meyer is still a pastor or not. Is she still pastoring the church? The reason I picked Joyce Meyer, by the way, did y'all hear about today about uh, Duplantis wants a $70 million plane? It's such ridiculous. I, they showed a thing, and Creflo Dollar wasn't the only one. Uh, Kenneth Copeland has one. But Duplantis has three private planes already. He wants a fourth. And what's, what's unbelievable, his church is going to give it to him. Um, $70 million plane. You know what he said? Had the gall to say it. He goes, he goes, I guarantee if Jesus came back today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be riding one of these. <laughs> so anyway, I'll say this because Joyce Meyer, I think, was a pastor one time and a lot of people like her. Um, first of all, Joyce Meyer is not someone that I would recommend as a teacher um, but I'm not making a statement on a woman if she's a pastor I'm not just gonna y'all I can tell y'all this I, the girl I dated in college for two years is now a pastor out in California did I ever tell you about that I must have missed that detail um, and when I heard when I heard when I heard that by the way Kelly like had to come up and like close my mouth <laughs> And I, and I said, she goes, isn't that amazing? I said, that's many things. And uh, I said, that's, I never in my wildest dreams would have thought she would have been a pastor ever, like even in a church. And, she, and, and I walked away and Kelly was like, probably what she thinks about you. And I was like, oh, you know, I think she's right. God takes broken people and makes them things. So, so what I'm saying is I know a woman who's, pastor. I know people respect women pastors. Here's what I want to say about that. In regards to 1 Timothy 2 and the clear teaching of Scripture, they are inconsistent with God's teaching. That's not to say that Joyce Meyer is going to hell. But here's the thing. When a church doesn't obey what's clearly there, nine times out of ten, they don't stop there. And that's where I have the problem. The United Methodist Church, when they start ordaining women, look what they're doing now in 2019. They're now convening a special council so they can they can marry same-sex couples. What I'm saying is, let's not. I'm not judging them and saying they're going to hell, but very rarely does is that where the inconsistent teaching stops. And uh, the United Methodist Church is is uh, making my point. So we demonstrate our commitment to the Word of God by structuring our church according to the way that God has spelled out for us. This is what I want to conclude. When Jesus came to earth, the first thing he did was not to come and go, hey guys, if you keep all these rules, we're going to be straight. If you keep the law, okay, if you keep this law, what Moses gave you, you can attain righteousness and then we'll be good terms. That, that's not how Jesus came. He said, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to die on a cross for you. And the church is beautiful because the Savior loved us so. We are obedient because of the Savior's love. We respect the authority of Jesus, not just because we have to, but it's because we want to. Because when we see our head, our chief, our leader on a cross, we go, oh my gosh, I want to follow him. And that's the model for our church. I, as a pastor, have to model my authority over you by serving you. 
in some way. That is, that is the model of Jesus. And all godly authority has to do that. If a left-wing atheist came into this church, they had to drive all the way down Mount Zion, and they expected, somebody told them Haynes Creek is uh, people that don't affirm, they don't, ordain, they don't ordain women, and they believe that husband is authority, and she's from somewhere in the West Coast, and she comes in, and she thinks she expects to find some backwoods, outdated, backwards church where the men treat women like they're footstools, and the men kind of, you know, like they've gone back to the 1920s. If she expects to find that, I would hope that she would come into Haynes Creek and find vibrant, thriving, personable, interesting, energetic, empowered women who are empowered not by the freedom that they're given, no more than the men are, but that they're supported, they're loved, they're cherished, they're prized, and they are served by their men. I would hope that anyone who comes in that door would see this. The church runs on love. So I wanted to end with that, is the way we structure our church, the way we structure our marriage, it's not about necessarily how we feel, it's not about competency, it's about what God has prescribed, and God has structured the authority in a marriage to reflect what? Okay, now I know you had it. One more time. Marriage picture is a picture of what? Marriage is a picture of what? The love of Jesus. Just make it, make it, make it Christocentric. Make it Jesus-centric. We can't ever define marriage in any meaningful way without going to the cross. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving me grace for such a sensitive subject. Thank you for blessing us this month of May. Thank you for showing us what it means to be a man and to be a woman. Father, I pray that the more we learn about you, the more we'll learn about ourselves. And that the more we learn about ourselves, the more we'll come to treasure you and to appreciate the gospel. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen.